Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. I'm your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm so glad you're joining me here in the beautiful and award-winning Viking and La Cordue showroom at the Merchandise Mart, here with my fabulous co-host, Chef Jamie Larita, who's a brand ambassador of Viking. That's right. And I am so glad you're joining us because we have a really fun guest today, Andrew Friedman, who is a prolific author and has this intriguing and compelling new book called Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And you take us behind the scenes of life as a chef. Welcome to Kitchen Chat. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) Oh, it's so good to have you here. I love how the arc of this book, it's really a coming out party of chefs in terms of how they were really stuck in the kitchen for a long time and the evolution of bringing the chef out of the kitchen Mm -hmm. and onto TV, onto into becoming an integral face of the restaurants. Yeah. What, and, and how could he chefs did you interview for this? Uh, I don't have it broken down by chefs and non-chefs, but I interviewed about 210 people Wow! over about five years. Wow. Yeah. It was fun. Wow. It was fun. Most of them in person, so mm-hmm. a lot of travel. Yes. Came to Chicago uh, to interview the late Charlie Trotter. Yes. Um, 12 visits to California, about a half dozen each to northern and southern. Uh, Florida, Boston, yeah. All over. And yeah. with the key name, Wolfgang Puck and Barbara Lazaroff yes. and Thomas Keller, Jonathan Waxman, yeah. Alice Waters. Well, um, what, I, what I really wanted to do with this book, because I, I didn't feel like anyone had really done it, is I felt like the story of the specifically American chef, yes. which really did not exist pre-1970, you know, it was almost unheard of that a, a kid from a good home in this country... Mm would turn to their parents one day and say, hey, mom and dad, I think I, think I might want to be a cook. Right. You know, that was like, I mean, and when they did do that, it was like their parents thought they were throwing their lives away. I mean, they, and often throwing away a college degree or maybe even a graduate degree uh, or a law career. Yeah. You know, these were all what we would now call career switchers. Sure. And I'd always felt like the story of the chef evolution in this country had always been sort of, thrown in the blender with the story of the food revolution in this country and had always gotten a little bit lost. But I really felt like there was this compelling story to be told of this first generation or so of American chefs and what they went through to become that before you could see fame and fortune on the horizon and book deals and television shows and product lines and empires of restaurants. These people literally just wanted to be cooks. I mean, they wanted to cook. Yeah, and I, could, I, I resonate with that, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the name of your book. I remember yeah. being uh, an eight-year-old in a big Italian family and feeling really comfortable in the kitchen and wanting to cook. I mean, that's what really drove me into my career. It wasn't the, you know, I came up through the 80s, um, and it wasn't a thing. You know, celebrity chefs were really not a thing. You had 
Um, who was who was there? You had um, well, Paul Perdome was known. Paul Perdome. Yes. Wolfgang and, was starting to be known. Right, and Julia Child, of course. You know, I used to watch her on TV mm-hmm. as a child. But um, when did that start? It was in the '90s, wasn't it? When the big when celebrity chefs the fame thing. You know, it depends who you talk to. There are people who feel like it started. In the 80s, I guess that's how you define fame, right? Right. Was, was being on a magazine cover fame. Right. You know, was being on Good Morning America once in a while as Wolfgang was fame. Right. If so, it started in the 80s. Uh, was having your own television show fame. If so, then I think you go to the early 90s. The Food right. Network was founded in 93. Correct. And I think changed everything. My book ends very deliberately in 1993 with the, with the coming of the Food Network, yes. which I feel marked for better, for worse, for both, marked the end of a of an era. Yeah, no, that's absolutely you true. Know, and changed changed the whole industry. So people when they see the cover of your book and they look at it and they see, you know, chefs, uh, drugs and rock and roll. Right. Um, what's the what's the name what's the name about and, and explain explain so the The name a, for me well first of all, I mean I, I, it it came to me one day. Uh-huh. I was driving around <laughs> Actually, at a tennis tournament in Indian Wells, California, and on a Saturday morning at a red light, and this title, I don't know why, it just yeah. popped wow. into my head. I get that. It's catchy. Ran home, Googled it, couldn't believe there hadn't even been a, a, an article with that headline. Right. At least not one that's Googleable. Um, and to me, that title very much, obviously, it's a play on sex and drugs and rock and roll, which is that famous phrase, sure. which to me evokes the 70s. And the 80s, which is when the book is set. Um, but you know that they're, they're definitely, uh, you know, people in this time started to talk about chefs as rock stars. That was a term yes. that got tossed around. Right. Made sense to me. Um, you know, the drug piece of it, I expected the book to be a little more wild than it is. Not that I would celebrate that stuff, but I expected maybe cautionary tales and, and, uh, Maybe some recountings of some wild nights, you know. Um, people were much less open about that than I thought. That I thought there'd be a statute of limitations, right? Uh, and I guess there's. I think people are so guarded and, and media trained and and managed these days. Right. Uh, you know, there's a book I love called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is the story of the American film directors of the '70s. Looks at. I wanted this book to look at chefs the way that book looked at, at filmmakers. And that book yeah. is really no holds barred. People on the record telling these unbelievable stories. I thought I was going to get the same stuff. <laughs> I couldn't. And that's okay. Um, the other interesting, though, piece about the drug element is, and I think this gets overlooked, and this is in the book, is I think for a lot of the people involved in this story, it was of a piece with the times, and I do think that is a part of the reason why this story happened. I think, you know, you had these young kids who were growing up against the backdrop of Vietnam. There was the whole protest society. Um, these were people who did not want to grow up and become their parents, you know, who didn't want to grow up and put on a suit and tie and go to an office. And I think the drug culture of that time is part of that. Right. And also the food culture, which I yeah. love. And that's where my heart totally. is in this story. Yeah. And because it all begins really with the French chef. And even you go back to Paul Bocuse's mm-hmm. story. And yeah. his parents didn't want him to be a right. chef. And right. then how the French chefs had this great prestige. I'm sure you experienced that oh, yeah. a lot too, Absolutely. Jamie. Mm-hmm. And, and just really the American chefs finding 
their voice and breaking through and gaining that respect and doing things differently but still using the French yeah. technique, right. but in their own way. Who do you feel was most influential in making that happen? Well, I think you have to look at it regionally or at least uh, in the main hubs of where the story took place. So I think in California, there was much, especially in L.A., which I think is a criminally underrated food city historically. I think now it's getting its due. But, you know, people, it was sort of anything goes. There was a lot of experimentation happening. Mm. Uh, you know, Jonathan Waxman, who was this, people think he was the first chef, but he was the second chef of Michael Santa Monica. You know, he talks about doing experimental food, knowing sometimes that as soon as it left the kitchen, it was a mistake, but having customers who were so eager to be part of this whole thing mm -hmm. that they were willing to be guinea pigs and willing sometimes to eat something that wasn't a home run. Yeah. I think on the, so I think on the West Coast, there's a lot of people I would put in the category mm -hmm. of game changers. You know, Jonathan Waxman, Wolfgang Puck, mm. uh, Jeremiah Tower, I think in a huge way. Oh yeah, Jeremiah Tower. I mean, Jeremiah... Sure. Uh, <laughs> I remember Jeremiah Tower um, was an inspiration you know, you don't hear his name that Not as often. much, although he's very much on the PR road these days. He's oh, doing yeah. a lot of festivals. There was a, there was a documentary about him called The Last Magnificent uh, that came out about a year and a half ago. Oh, I have to catch that. Yeah. Um, uh, but he was, what he did at Stars. even what he did when he was at Chez Panisse, right. was, was really just outside the box mm -hmm. thinking. And then on the East Coast, I think you had a much more of a sort of adherence to the French background you're mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, the East Coast was where people would go to the Culinary Institute of America yeah. or go overseas and do what they called a stage yeah. or an apprenticeship mm -hmm. in a French you kitchen. Did I, did, I did both <laughs> those things. Right. So you, it was sort of like people, I feel like, much more on the East Coast had to go through hmm. a stage of sort of adhering to the doctrine and then breaking out of it. So you had someone like Charlie Palmer, yes. who was an early chef at the River Cafe. But it come up in French kitchens like La Coque Basque, and, mm. but then started applying, as you said, French technique to traditional American flavors, his version of dishes. You know, before Charlie, Larry Forgione, who was the yeah. original, yeah. not the original. There's always, there's always in a lot of these restaurants an original chef that no one's ever heard of, and then the one everyone's heard of. So Larry was actually the second chef of River Cafe, and, but he would take, you know, regional American food, apply the technique he picked up at the Culinary Institute of America and working at the Connaught Hotel in London and working uh, in France for a short period of time and apply those techniques to right. uh, dishes that he would pull out of cookbooks. One of my favorite little footnotes in the book, I mean, it's in there, uh, this story, he became friendly with James Beard. Yes. And I he would to go that. to what is now the Beard Foundation headquarters, yes. James Beard's mm -hmm. house, yes. on 12th Street in New York City, and they would pull cookbooks off the shelves oh. and talk about dishes, and Larry got a lot of his ideas from those and times I, with James Beard. I love that, and also I think of Larry Forgione as a forager, because he was he the one that would call, and yeah. I call Indiana and ask for this is another big difference between hickory nuts? Or yeah, this is again, you know, California, you could get, there was already a lot of agriculture happening uh, and a lot of uh, access to ingredients, great ingredients for chefs. Not the way it is now, mm. but you know, on the East Coast, Larry having come from the European kitchens, having seen 
farmers coming to the back door, you know, with freshly killed rabbits and whatever, and baskets of mushrooms. And well, Larry had grown up hanging out at his grandparents' farm on Long Island, and he had this epiphany, which is so obvious. This all, these stories <laughs> seem very quaint in hindsight, yeah. right? But his epiphany was. I know there's this stuff in the United States, but why don't we have it in restaurants? You know, why are we getting stuff shrink wrapped in plastic? You know, why why aren't we dealing directly with farms? And he, at one time in his career, he told me he spent half of his days, half of each day, basically sleuthing out ingredients from around the country. You know, getting on the phones, looking for mushrooms, for uh, hickory nuts, for you name it. Um, not just finding the person who could provide it, but this was pre-FedEx. So right. Larry would then also have to figure out how to get it shipped. Wow. And when yeah. he was at River Cafe, the think, owner... Think about that. That's very interesting. Pre-FedEx, pre-internet. Like, yeah. Pre-internet is, is yeah. amazing. So, you know, people today can go on a purveyor's website, sure. a young cook, and pick from, like, dozens of microgreens, right? Yeah. Here you had somebody like Larry cooking in a really esteemed restaurant but wanting to elevate the game, right? And so he would figure out how to get things shipped, and then Buzzy O'Keefe, who to this day owns the River Cafe, a couple times a week would send a van to JFK Airport to pick up all this stuff that was <laughs> flown in in the cargo holds of these airplanes. That's how they got a lot of their food. That's crazy to think about. But that's what it took. I remember yeah. giving a talk to a group of uh, restaurant cooks uh, when I was working on the book. They asked me to come in and give a little talk about what I was working on. And I, was, I read from this Larry interview, and I read what he would go through to put his hands on stuff, and their jaws were on the floor. I mean, it's really, if you're, you know, south of maybe 35 years old, it's un, this is almost unimaginable. It is right? unimaginable. You know, what people had to go through. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Um... It's really. I love your passion. I mean, you're oh, very, you're, you're very passionate and you. and extremely informed. It's Thank it's it's. Uh, you spend five, five years yes. on something. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm very difficult. I know. It's it's refreshing. And I love too, Jamie. How in the book you really give credit to our friend Barbara Lazaroff for mm. being a very key player yes. in terms of making the success yeah. of. Wolfgang Puck's Empire and Spago. Yeah. And, well, we should say and, Barbara is Wolfgang's now ex-wife. Yes, yes. Who met him when he was the chef of Ma Maison, mm -hmm. which was a real sort of CMB scene, Hollywood canteen, I guess you would call it, uh, back in the 70s. And, and then the two of them together went on to do Spago and Chinois and some other restaurants together. Uh, they've been divorced for a while now, but Barbara had a background in stage design and theater, and is also a big personality. Oh dresses. yeah, we 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 have, she's impeccable. Yeah. I mean, she's so fashionable. We actually celebrated uh, Barbara here in the Viking show. But Barbara is responsible for the look mm -hmm. of those restaurants, which was revolutionary at the time. Yes. Um, and a lot of people, to different degrees, will tell you, you know, that Wolfgang was much more reticent early on, and that she's sort of helped push him out into the public and had a real vision for what he could be as a celebrity. Um, to different degrees, different people will tell sure. you that. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. So that was the past, and we talked a lot about the, the present, but what do you think the future is for these, you know, for celebrities? For, for the profession, for yeah. chefs themselves? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so here's my crystal ball thought. I think I like that... that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, 
there's all these, okay, so if you go back, I love this example. You know, you look at someone like Jonathan Waxman, mm -hmm. who got known doing these stripped down, what, what, what a lot of people would call California cuisine. Yes. Um, you know, he's famous for a roast chicken with french fries, right? That was a signature <laughs> dish. It, <laughs> it's still amazing. Who he's doesn't still, love that? He oh, still serves it. I could, I could eat that right now for breakfast. So Jonathan, you know, is, got famous for that kind of food. And then you have someone like Thomas Keller, mm. who's famous for these very intricate, fussy, you know, French-leaning uh, dishes. And he didn't go to culinary well, school. Well, so this, this is the punchline, right? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, but John, of the two, Jonathan went to La Varenne Cooking School in Paris. Thomas did not go to cooking school. And I think back at that time, you would, those two looked at each other as peers. They, did, mm. they operated in very different styles. But they were, they were peers. And in fact, it's, it's another funny footnote is Jonathan's the one who was driving around the Napa Valley one day and saw that this restaurant called the French Laundry was for sale and called an out-of-work Thomas Keller in L.A. and said, I think I found a place for you to do your thing. And that's how that happened. That's a true story. Oh, my goodness. But I love that. My point is that I, those people, I think all, most of the people in this story saw themselves as equals, mm -hmm. okay, to some extent. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening now is with the different types of businesses available to people, um, I think we're going to see a, str a stratification. I think it's already happened, just nobody's named it. You know, so because of food trucks, because of these places that just do one thing, you know, like uh, hot chicken, right? Like there are places that just do that. There are places that, that just do um, uh Steak sandwiches, right? right? Mm -hmm. Now, you don't have to have gone to cooking school for that or even have much training if that's all you're doing. Uh, but all these people call themselves chefs, you know? So I think there's going to become the equivalent of like a single subject chef. I think there's going to be a pop-up or whatever that's going to be called at some point. Someone who basically is nomadic, who doesn't have a restaurant, who only does pop-ups. And I think you'll have the traditional... I can't tell if you're agreeing with this. No, I'm thinking but, about it. I, I'm, I'm, down, I'm downloading. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know you. that they'll all be called chefs even. Right. You know, and I, I think well, you know, we're at this moment now yeah, it's, where the, the landscape uh -huh. is changing dramatically, and I don't feel like the, the terminology has caught up to it yet. Yeah, I think in certain cities, like the restaurant bubble has bursted, number one. And, and I feel like the, the whole, um, in my opinion, I feel like that whole celebrity chef... Yeah. Um, is kind of it's being diluted a little bit um, by a lot of the things that you're talking about and people today with the speed of again the internet and information and lack of time um, I feel that I'm watching a lot of these uh, big you know box food companies that yeah. are bringing people back into the kitchen Mm -hmm. So to me, I, I'm, I, I like what you're saying because I start, I'm starting to see some of that. But I'm also starting to see a trend of people um, utilizing these, um, you know, recipe uh, box package yes. kits, yeah. companies. And that's, for me, I, I, I'm always trying to bring people back into the kitchen, mm -hmm. especially here in the showroom. Um, we, we talk about the love of food. And I felt like that has become... Um, gone by the wayside. You know, I grew up with having this big Italian family that always, you know, my grandmother, those were the, the food memories and the taste memories that I have. And I feel like there was a generation of where that didn't happen. Yeah, you had, you had two career parents, right? right? Two mm -hmm. career families, mm -hmm. kids spending for themselves, mm -hmm. 
food was really just fuel, right? Mm. It was utilitarian. It was mm. just I need to eat. Yeah, something you had yeah. to put. You had to put food on yeah. the table because it was like something, especially if it was fast. But I feel like that energy has dissipated. And for me, that's I've been working really hard on educating people about you know that energy is so important. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is, uh, I, I, like, I like your point, and I do agree with you on that, but I'm also seeing, I'm, I'm answering my own question, but I'm also seeing people going back into the kitchen, right. which is interesting right. to me. And the other interesting thing, too, I love your perspective on that. You know, in the book, you talk about how the restaurant critics from the New York Times and all of that really shaped yeah. the chefs. What do you see in terms of that? I mean, everyone seems to be a critic these days. Has that yeah. been changing the dynamics? I mean, of, literally, of right? You mean yes. what, what I call the civilian reviewers of Yelp and <laughs> yeah. Well, then you have the food influencers that yes. are on, like you know, Instagram, and they're Huge. they're taking pictures of food. And do they really know food? Well, this could be a whole other interview because <laughs> right. you know I think the power of social media is is. Good. Mm-hmm. It's a way, it is a way to be noticed. But I also think there is a, a, a whole generation of, certainly of diners. I don't think of critics yet, official critics, people who write for, you know, the magazines or newspapers or, or websites. But, um, uh, I do feel like there is a generation of diners for whom what the food tastes like, you were talking about the love of the food a minute mm-hmm. ago, is maybe third or fourth down on the list of priorities. You know, before that comes, uh, does it look good on, does it look cool? Right. Uh, is there a shock value? Forget whether or not it actually tastes good, but is it something I've never had before? Um, you know, is, did I, did I notch that, you know, did I notch that on my Instagram belt? Um, it's interesting. And there are people I believe, uh, I don't believe, I know this because I've had these conversations. I just recently did an interview for my podcast with Justin Hilbert, mm-hmm. who's the chef of Maud. Yes. Uh, in Beverly yes. Hills, which is one of Curtis Stone's yes. restaurants. And he was very open about it. He said, you know, people want that image, and I can give them that image and still cook good food. But that is now more of a consideration for somebody like him than it was maybe five years ago, mm-hmm. right? And if you notice, there's restaurants in New York, and again, the food can be great. Uh, there's a restaurant I love called Wild Air. It's a, it's a wine bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their platings are very, uh, they're not composed most of the time. Mm-hmm. They're, it's food that looks really good from above. It, it grams really well. Oh, does it? Yeah, and it's some of the best food in it's New so York. It's so interesting, because now I'm, I'm thinking about, yeah, and I, I, I'm going to go there when I'm back in New York next week. But um, it's funny when we talk about gramming and, you know, putting that, I find myself when I'm plating, there's an extra two to three minutes at the end that I have to like exude that energy upon the plate. And that's also what people are consuming. Does it make it, does it charge the plate more? I think so. You know, cause to me, to me, it's all about, you know, that energy, everything you touch, everything you think about, does that plate become more delicious? Right. Instagrammable energy. Yeah. Yeah, but the flip side of this is I've had conversations with young chefs who have a lot of anxiety now. Oh, yeah. Because uh, the flip side of that is, let's say I want to run a special, and let's say it tanks, right? Well, what if somebody with a huge following is in for dinner that night, Instagrams it out, says it's a failure. (laughs) No, two different chefs have said this to me in interviews in the last six months. 
that 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 actually restricts them, constrains them creatively, maybe not in their head, but what they'll actually let out the door or off the pass, mm-hmm. right? And they'll hold back a little and play it a little bit safer, right? And I think that's too bad. You know, mm-hmm. you contrast that with the thing I was saying about Jonathan Waxman years ago, yes. you know, who once said, you know, that he could, he could serve his customers anything on a given night as long as it's not the same thing they had the night before. Right. You know, I don't think that's where we are now. I think people... I think that's why I can only speak to New York in this way because I live there. But there is a lot of sameness in the food in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there, uh, Eater, the, the website a couple of years ago did a, it was very funny. It was every trendy uh, New York restaurant menu. And it, it was a full menu. And it, was, it did basically seem like the menu of half the restaurants in New York. So give me your three top three restaurants in New York. Oh, what occasion? <laughs> I always have to ask what occasion. Just from a delicious perspective. Like where where you go, where you go to? Like no, regularly. Uh, well, right now, I'll give you at the moment. Uh, I love a, a Chicago graduate, Missy Robbins, who used to be at Spiaggia. Mm-hmm. Her restaurant, Lilia, is one of my favorite restaurants. I I love that restaurant, and I I've been on the record with that with her. That that's right now probably my favorite restaurant. I just went to a new restaurant that opened this year called Frenchette, uh-huh. which is. Uh, uh, Riyad Masir and Lee Hansen, who for years were the chefs at Balthazar, they're graduates of Daniel Baloud's flagship restaurant, mm-hmm. and it is a phenomenal, fun, sexy restaurant with just incredible. I, as soon as I saw the menu, I knew what I was going to order that night. The top thing in the entree section was duck free. Yum. And it was just Ooh. the most perfectly roasted duck breast, a big thing of fries and Bernays sauce, and a little sauce boat. And it's, it is absolutely <laughs> killer. And then um, Alex Stupak, who has the Empeon Mexican restaurants, yes. his Midtown restaurant, which is sort of his fancy one, uh, I just think he's brilliant. I think he's, mm. people may know Alex started off as a very sophisticated pastry chef. He was the opening pastry chef of Alinea uh-huh. here yes. in Chicago. And then he was the pastry chef at WD50 in New, in New York City. And then when it came time to do his own thing, he pulled this move that everyone thought was crazy and went to the savory side and started doing Mexican food. Um, there are reasons for it. We don't have time for that right now, that it made sense. Um, and his third, and I think, I don't even want to say most successful, but the most ambitious is this restaurant in Midtown, which from the cocktails to the starters to, and then he kind of gets into his playground with dessert and does the stuff along the lines of what you might see at a, at a, at a millennia on the dessert side. Uh, those, those are three. I'm among, there's many others, but those are the ones that pop to mind. And I have to throw in Barbudo, which is my perpetual go-to, which is Jonathan Waxman's, I think at this point, classic yes, West Village restaurant. Absolutely. Yeah. So in a nutshell, can you share with us your culinary journey? Have you always been a foodie, and what brought you into this journey? So the nutshell version is... Uh, I have not always been a foodie. I grew up in this polar opposite of your childhood. I grew up with a single working mom mm-hmm. uh, who would come home exhausted. As often as not, dinner was a bag of Wendy's that she would pick up on the way home. Uh, it was understandable. Um, I always loved restaurants, though. I came to New York for college, and I quickly, whatever I could afford to go to, uh, I just loved, I loved a good restaurant, whether it was high end or low end, mm-hmm. just a restaurant where you walk in and it's kind of humming and there's a vibe. And, um, you know, I was in college in New York in the eighties. It was a great time to, to mm-hmm. be starting to eat a little bit. Yes. Um, 
I wanted to be in the film business. Oh. And was. Uh... But what I really wanted to do was write. So I stopped writing screenplays, decided I was going to try to write other things. Took a day job with a PR firm, which a job I found in the New York Times. And it happened to be the top restaurant PR firm in New York. And all of a sudden, I was representing Alfred Portali at the Gothel Bar and Grill. And Marcus Samuelson, when he became the chef at Aquavit when he was 24 years old. And Rocco Despirito, when he opened Union Pacific who actually cooked my wedding. We had, my wedding was at Union Pacific. Um, and uh, Alfred Portali was getting ready to do his first cookbook. And he was my client. We were friends. I, I often, because I was a pretty good writer, would help him and other clients. I would write speeches, letters. I didn't really think of it at the time, but it was a form of ghostwriting. And uh, it's, it's a much longer story than this, but I ended up co-authoring the Gotham Bar and Grill cookbook which is the first thing I ever got paid money to write. And at the time, I didn't even own a cookbook. Um, I was, it was, it, how it happened is bizarre. Um, but I had a great time. And uh, yeah, so within a year of that book coming out, I jumped ship on my job and I started going to all these chef friends and acquaintances and letting them know my shingle was out as a collaborator. And I started doing that. I, I thought by now I was going to have sold a screenplay and I'd be... <laughs> living in the Hollywood Hills, so that didn't happen. And somewhere along the way as a collaborator, I realized or I felt like I had become sort of an expert about chefs. Yes. I knew yes. a lot of them. I'd spent a lot of time in kitchens. I'd heard their stories. I'd written their stories. I didn't feel like anyone had really carved out. Yeah. You know, like I refer to myself as a chef writer, not a food writer. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't write recipes. I'm not yeah. a cook. I write about these people. And this is incredible. Thank you very much. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. On One of the chat. most interesting kitchen chats I think we've had. <laughs> yes, right. yeah. absolutely. I, I could, uh, this could go on for hours. I know. Well, <laughs> to be continued, we'll have to, so. and we'll make sure, and what is your podcast? Oh, my podcast is called Andrew Talks to Chefs. Great. It's deep dive biographical interviews with chefs. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Spotify, easy to find. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andrew. Thank for you. Being Thanks for having me. Kitchen chat. And thank you, dear foodie friends, for joining us in the Viking and La Carneuse showroom today here with Chef Jamie Larita. Come visit him in the Merchandise Mart and grab a copy of Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. I'll make sure I have a link. Visit me in my kitchen, kitchenchat.info. And always remember to take a moment and savor the day. Thanks for joining Margaret for Kitchen Chat today. Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info, where you'll enjoy podcasts, blogs, recipes, tips from chefs, and even great giveaways. She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.